All that we do is on purpose and has hundreds, even thousands of years of traction. Our liturgy designed to instill in us and the next generation the great principles, the great truths of our God and His kingdom, His Son. I just love all that we do for the glory of God. It's so important, such a witness to the world around us. So we are in the seizing of the counting of the Omer, which connects Passover with Shavuot, which connects liberation with freedom and liberty to walk in God's ways. He took his people out of Egypt in order to bring them into the promised land. And so this is a great theme that we have that we memorialize every year, that we remind ourselves of every year things that we renew in our own life over and over and over, ingraining within us the identity of who we are in the Messiah. It keeps us on track, right? Keeps our train on rails in a world that's off the rails all around us. And without this, what we do week in and week out, it'd be easy for any one of us to become you know, seduced or pulled away from what God has for us. Keep in mind that Egypt was a kingdom immersed in lies, in falsehoods that led people to slavery. And the kingdom of Messiah, that's an entirely different kingdom. It's a kingdom drenched in truth, leading people to freedom, to liberty. If you desire and value liberty, Get into the kingdom of God now. There's only two kingdoms, the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. You're either in one or the other. There's no other kingdom. There's no other realm, the realm of life or the realm of death. And the only way to get into the realm of life is to receive the life of the one who gave it up on the cross for you. When you receive Yeshua as your Lord and Savior, you receive life. You're brought into a kingdom of light, a kingdom of power, a kingdom of love. And that's the kingdom that God has designed for you. He loves you. So get into the kingdom. Embrace Yeshua, the Son of God, the truth of God, the Lamb of God, so that you can participate in the kingdom of life, light, love, and liberty. You'll not only find liberation, from deception and misery, but you will also find everything your spirit longs for. Coming out of the kingdom of falsehoods and into the kingdom of truth is what Passover and Shavuot is all about. So, in today's teaching, we'll explore a few of these ideas. Lies lead to deception, which leads to sin, which leads to slavery, which leads to misery and ultimately the realm of death. So let's look at the original sin. What was the original sin, right? What was that original sin event that can open up our understanding of how we become enslaved in the first place? So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at the first seven verses. I think they're powerful in, in terms of what they convey. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, 
Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, this serpent, later known as Satan, this divine son of God, this divine being who fell earlier, he comes to seduce Adam and Eve. He knows what God has said. He shows up to tempt her, to lead her astray. That's what this story is all about. He says, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The first thing he leads Eve to do is to question the word of God. He wanted her to question the legitimacy, the credibility of the word of God. What do you think truth is rooted in? Your own ideas, your own heart, your own understanding? The culture you live in, the society that you're a part of, where is truth rooted if not the Word of God? See, the Word of God is truth. It is the bedrock of truth. In fact, it's the very lens that we interpret all truth statements to verify whether or not they're true. The Word of God. And first thing that Satan wants to attack in your life is your faith in the Word of God. He wants you to question the credibility of His Word. His Word is divinely inspired without error. It is the very bedrock in which we receive revelation of what is real concerning Him, the world we live in, and ourselves. So the devil will always try to get you to question the Word of God. That's his first main attack. Now you can question the word of God in a healthy way. You can midrash with your friends. You can, you can ask the texts questions, right? That's a midrash. But you don't midrash with the devil. You don't midrash with the evil one. When he comes to question the word of God, you need to simply rebuke him and send him packing. But he comes And he gets her to question the word of God. Verses two and three. The woman said to the serpent, from the trees, or from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Verse four. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. He he moves from getting her to question the word to contradicting the word. First he gets her to question it, then he says, no, 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 that's not true. That that idea that you're going to die is false. God's not being upfront with you, and he's not being honest. He just doesn't want you to gain knowledge concerning the world that you live in. He's withholding that from you. Now that was the lie. That was the lie that he gave to her. The idea is that there is no consequences to your disobedience, right? In the end, isn't that what he's saying? He's saying, no, you can eat of the tree, you're not going to die. That's disobedience. God said, don't do it. So he says, don't worry about it. There's no consequences. You surely won't die. See, the idea that she can sin and there's no consequences is a big lie. None of us sin when we have in view what the consequences are. You know, awkward emotes. 
The end. If you can know the end, you'll never enter into that place in the first place. We typically sin because we're not thinking of the consequences. When you think of the consequences and what can happen, typically you won't sin. You know, growing up, I was a little thief for a very short period of my life. I think I was in fifth grade, good Catholic boy. You know, I understood, uh, you know, to some degree, the value of private property, that things don't belong to you except what you have. You need to respect other people's stuff, and they need to respect your stuff. So I remember the first time I stole something from a store. My friend had been stealing. He was like, like a, he was way ahead of me, and he had stuff because he stole it. Because when I was growing up, I didn't have a lot of money. You know, we, we, we came from a, a family that didn't have a lot of stuff. So you know what? We didn't have a lot of stuff. So he showed me how to steal. I remember going to uh, my little store uh, with him. He was the watch out guy. He'd watch the clerk up front and they'd give me the nod. And then I would steal things from the store. You know, not much, just stupid merchandise, you know, that a kid would, would want. You know, took a little pocket knife one time, it was about an inch long, you know, had a little holster on it and stuff, stupid. But I stole it. Yeah. So I was a little thief because I thought I wouldn't get caught. I thought I wouldn't get caught. See, if I thought I would have got caught, I never would have done that. Fifth grade, my dad's military. My dad thinks he's still in the military. My dad, my dad gave us spankings for bad attitudes. You didn't have to do anything. Just have a bad, just grump a little bit. Get whacked and you think, what is that all about? He'd say, nothing. That's, that's for nothing, son. Now do something. Man, I'd never do the something. Attitude was enough, right? No, I would never steal if I thought I'd get caught. I remember one day I, st I, I stole, uh, I think it was a bunch of, uh, I stole some cigar bubble gum. Remember you could buy, you could get the big hunks of cigar bubble gum. You can't do that because it's politically incorrect to have a kid with a cigar so they can't do that kind of candy anymore. So anyway, I stole some cigars, gave them out to some friends, gave one to my sister, you know, big mistake. Because my sister has such a beautiful, gentle conscience. So I'm chewing my gum, having a great time. A couple hours later, just, you know, time of my life, me and my buddies, you know. And my sister comes up to me. She's pale. She says, I got to tell mom. I said, what? She goes, yeah, I got to tell mom. She goes, this is wrong. I said, no, 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 no. I said, you cannot tell mom. She says, no, I got to tell mom. This, this is wrong. I said, okay, it's wrong. It's wrong. You know, I can take the gum back, whatever, but don't tell mom. No, I got to tell mom. I said, why do you have to tell mom? It's my conscience. I said, don't tell mom. She told mom. Yeah. What did my mom do? She made me go to the store with her and confess to the store manager what I did. It was horrible. It was humiliating. It was frightening. I was just a kid, right? And I had to go up there, confess to the store manager what I did, give back the unchewed parts of the gum, what was left, and then my mom gave me some money to pay for what I stole, and I gave that to the manager. Yeah, That ended my career at a very early age of stealing. My mother told me something I never, ever forgot. She said, son, the Bible says your sin will find you out. 
do you think you can steal and, and, and that not become known? See, God loves you, son. And because God loves you, if you steal, he's going to bring it to the light. You're going to get caught because he loves you. I never stole again. Why? I don't want to go through the humiliation of being exposed and make restitution. It's painful. It's not worth it. Yeah. So, the enemy comes, gets you to question the word of God, and then, then tries to convince you that what you do will have no consequences in your life. And once you buy that lie, you will be seduced and fall into that temptation. And that will set a number of things in motion. Verse 5 says this, Satan speaking, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If you'll, if you'll eat of that tree that God says don't eat of it, because he's trying to withhold from you things that you need. If you eat, you'll gain an understanding of good and evil, just like God. In fact, you'll become like him. You'll become on par with him. You'll become equal to him. Like him, you will be free to do whatever you want to do. And he doesn't want that for you. So he's lying to you. There's no consequences. You're not going to die. He loves you too much. No, you're going to become like him. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her and he ate. She embraced the lie. She then gave her attention to that which is forbidden. She began to focus her attention on the tree, its beauty, what it could do for her. Just like we do when we sin. We sin because we think we're going to get something out of that. We do that because we think we're going to get something. She's looking, seeing at what the tree can give her. She glamorizes it. And then she gave herself to it turns and leads her spiritually passive husband to do the same thing. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Man, you cannot be spiritually passive. It's the worst thing you can do. It's the opposite of what it means to be a man. But he's passive, he follows her, and he too eats of the tree. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And then they hid themselves from God, that this beautiful relationship with God, and daily they would walk with Him in the cool of the garden. It's such a fantastic, life-giving relationship, and now they're hiding from God, filled with shame. Through their sin, they would become enslaved now to its consequences. Part of which was God showed them the door to Eden, kicked them out, and excommunicated them from the realm of life. 
they found themselves outside in a place that was harsh and cruel. It was a new realm for them, a realm of misery and death, like the good book says. The way of the sinner is hard. And they were about to learn that for the first time. Now, if lies can lead to sin, because that's how the enemy works, through lies. If lies can lead to sin, slavery and misery, then truth can lead one to liberty and to happiness. And before I get into the truth thing, let me just say clearly, Jesus is truth. That's where liberty begins, embracing Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He's the embodiment of all truth. He is liberty. So in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36, I think it is, we'll work our way down. Jesus says some things that are absolutely fascinating. It says, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my word, it's not enough to know the word. You got to embrace the word and you got to live in the word. And you don't just live in the word for a week or two or a month. No, you continue in the word. It needs to become a lifestyle. You base your life on the word of God and you grow in the word of God and it transforms you. And if you continue in his word, then you become disciples of the Messiah. And he goes on to say, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Why? Because his words are spiritual words. His words are life-giving words. They are true. They've been tested. They're eternal. When Jesus came, he came full of grace and truth. It's one of the attributes of God, truth, that which is real. Because the enemy wants to bring that which is false, a deception to, to, to seduce you away from God. So they answer him in verse 34 through 36. Truly, truly, I say to you. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me go back. They answered him, verse 33. We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? This is a great question. They're totally looking through the natural realm and taking his words literally. And Jesus is trying to talk about that which is true spiritually and eternally. So it's a great question that they ask. And, and in fact, most people think this way and in these terms. He answers them and says in verse 34 through 36, Truly, I truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Everyone who commits sin becomes a slave to sin. Sin's going to take you farther than you want to go. When, when, you, when you think you can play with something that you know the Father's saying off limits, do you think you can just play on your own terms? 
Sin's a principle. Sin's a power. It'll grip you and hold you and take you further than you've ever imagined into a place of slavery, what the world will call even an addiction, ultimately. And you'll be bound by it. Jesus said he who commits sin is a slave to sin. Basically, what he was saying is, you all are sinners. Every one of those people in his audience had their own sin issues. All we like sheep have gone astray, each to our own ways. We all have our own paths, our own proclivities to different areas of sin. And he was calling them out. And he says, you know, a slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So freedom comes with an encounter with the truth. The scriptures are truth. They reveal truth. Jesus is the embodiment of the truth. Our job, like our motto says, is to embrace truth. When we encounter truth, say yes to it. Embrace it. Dive into it, right? Embrace truth. Then live it. Change your life so that it lines up with the truth. Begin walking in the truth. You'll acclimate over a period of time. You'll become in love with it. It'll grip you. You'll become a slave to righteousness in the end. So you embrace truth, and then you live truth, and then you share truth. This is what we're called to do as a people. This is our our way of life in the harvest. So let's talk about personal struggles, right? Personal sins. We call them struggles. That's, That's so much easier on our conscience, right? So what are our personal struggles with sin? Here's one, and there's many, but I was thinking about this one. Do you love knowledge more than you love God? The temptation for Adam and Eve was to eat of the tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. You know, some people idolize knowledge. Knowledge is their passion. Knowledge is their religion, knowing more and more stuff and things that they can then, then feel like they're, they're teachers of others. They, they take, in a sense, a lordship over others through the power of knowledge. In the end, what they have is a knowledge, of course, about God, but they don't have a relationship with God. Like Eve, they choose the tree of knowledge over relationship with the one who made the tree. The pursuit of knowledge in this sense is a grievous sin against God. Do you you struggle with submitting to delegated authority? That's a big one today. It's a big part of, of what's going on in the nation. The spirit of anarchy is all around us. Defund the police, the very embodiment of, of implementing the law and enforcing the rule of law. Do you struggle with submitting to delegated authority? Keep in mind that rebellion is akin to the sin of witchcraft. Rebellion is the heartbeat of Satan and his kingdom. 
And when you or I are in rebellion, we place ourselves under the rule and reign of Satan. I knew of a husband and a wife who were ordained and serving full-time on staff at a church when this woman got offended and decided to leave. She left in great anger. She spread a lot of gossip and sought to bring the church down through division. Her husband, who was also on staff at this church, followed her with his tail between his legs. They went to a rebel church for safe haven. The rebel rebel church was warned and advised to send them back for discipline and formation. We say this every week in our liturgy. At the very end, reproofs for discipline are the way of life, right? Is that not true? That is the word of the Lord. We grow through reproofs. That's the one of the ways that we grow. That's formation. God chastises those whom he loves. We stiffen our necks. We say, how dare you chastise us? No one chastises us. I'm your equal. You have no right, no authority to chastise me. We press for that equality with God to be equal with God so that we're not under anyone. God forbid that we're chastised. Reproofs for discipline are the way of life. But this church decided to actually press the issue and even discipline their highest leaders. Most churches won't do that. In in, in many churches, the highest leaders, they're not accountable to anyone. You know that's true. This church decided to address their own leaders. So they told the rebel church, send them back. The rebel church said no, and instead of that, actually appointed the husband to be one of their elders. That was like insult to injury. It was unbelievable. About one year after they did that, his wife got offended over there and decided to leave them like she left the first church. In fact, she sent a text to their leadership, but made a mistake and pushed the wrong address and sent it to the first church, unaware. So the first church gets this text from her to this other church. Quote, I can't do what I talked about last night to my husband or current church. Actually, has the husband's name and the church's name. I took that out to protect the innocent. Forget what TV show that was. Change the names, right? I can't do what I talked about last night to my husband or my current church. We'll both be staying. I cannot do to my husband or current church what I said I was going to do last night. We're going to be staying. What that tells me is they were leaving. Now she changed her mind. They're going to stay. But if you read the text carefully, she says, I can't do that to my current church. 
Probably because she felt bad about what she did at the last church. And she realized I'm doing the same thing over again. I can't do that to the current church or my husband. Which implies that he might even not, not be aware of what she was up to. Or he was aware, but regardless, she realized, I better not do this. Hopefully, my husband can continue as an elder, even with our views, because I believe he's called to do that. Now she's interposing on behalf of her husband. I'm hoping my husband can stay as an elder. He's called to be an elder. Within the next two weeks, they were dispatched from that church. I don't know if they were asked to leave or if they left themselves because they didn't get their way. Who knows? People, we have to learn that just because we don't get our way doesn't mean that we leave. Submission only comes into play when you're in disagreement with your delegated authorities. It's easy to submit to your authorities when you're in agreement. Whether that's your parents, your employer, civil uh, leaders, or ecclesiastical leaders. It's only when you're in disagreement do you get tested in the area of submission. And most people run when they're in conflict and reproved. This rogue couple, they went on to birth their own church. I guess if you can't submit, you just become your own church. That way no one can tell you what to do. So over a period of a couple of years, they set out three different times with promotionals and advertisements and a lot of, lot of you know, pomp and circumstance to actually launch their own church. Three times, filled miserably in the field, three times. Utter failure in the field, three times. They hadn't yet figured out that there's the head of the church. His name is Jesus. And if you don't know how to submit to authority, you just don't get very far in his church. The consequence of their arrogance and rebellion has been a trail of tears for many, many, many years to date. Failure in ministry is their only legacy. It didn't have to be that way. It still doesn't have to be that way. But they refuse to reconcile to the church they left and tried to destroy. It's very, very sad. The lesson is to learn to value and submit to your delegated authorities. This is probably my biggest sin area in my life. I can't think of a close second. In my early and late teenage years, even into my 20s, I hated delegated authority. I was bitter at delegated authority whether it was my own parents or my teachers in school or just law enforcement, man, I just, I, I hated them. I hated authority. 
I, th I think that was really kind of misdirected because really I was too afraid to direct it to God, but that's what it was all about. You know, we tend to blame, the, the enemy leads us to blame God for whatever it is that's going on. So I had to learn this hard, arduous path of loving authority and valuing authority. We need to learn to value, submit to our delegated authorities unless what they're asking clearly violates the clear commands of God. That's the only exception. We are to accept reproofs for discipline. It's what forms our lives. It's what forms our character, bringing it into alignment with the character of Messiah. So what are your areas? What do you struggle with? Everyone has something different. We're all so unique, even in our proclivity to sin. So, your area of sin. Ask the following questions. This is the season of a coming out. We should come out further and further, farther and farther from our Egypts of sin and shame. That's growth. So we grow in Messiah. So here are some questions. Ask the following questions. Write down your sin not your name, don't want to be identified if that paper gets away from you. Write down your sin and then ask these questions. How do I justify or excuse my sin? Because if you're in sin, you're justifying it. It's the only way you can deal with the, with the guilt and the shame. So you've already justified it. Everyone I ever talked to about, it, about whatever sin, they've got it down. They've got the reasons why they can do that. that that's true for me when, when I was in sin. I had ways to justify, you know, my sins. How do I justify or excuse my sin? The Bible says this. It says it's a sin. So how, how do I do that? How, you know, well, I was born that way. That's a big one, isn't it? I was born that way. That's how God made me. Really? Because is that what the Word says? I mean, even if you took that path, you have a tremendous, beautiful passage that says you must be born again. Born of God, born of the Spirit. The Word of God's going to set you free. So write down how you've justified it and then go to the Word and see if that stands up. It won't, just let you know. It's a spoiler, it won't. Read it anyway. Number two, what does it give me that I like? What is it that that sin gives me that I like? Okay, because I'm getting something from that. If I wasn't, I wouldn't do it. I'm getting something. So write down what you're getting, okay? Write down, let's do a cost, uh, what do they call that? A cost-benefit analysis. What's the benefit? Write it down. Now, the next question is, is what does it cost me? What's it cost me? See, right now you might be saying, does it cost me anything? Because you haven't been caught yet, and that's the grace of God. But if you abuse that grace long enough, God will move to the place of exposing that sin. And then it's going to cost you something. And what will it cost you? Ask the, ask the Lord, if I continue to hide in my sin and play around with it, what will that cost me, Lord? Figure out what that is. Might be your job. Might be your wife. Your reputation. What's it going to cost you? Ever been to prison? Pretty scary place. Yeah, so you write down what it's going to cost you. That's going to help you find freedom. And then go to the Word and say, God, what are you saying about this? 
Where's the truth of this matter? Because if you discover the truth, you're halfway out. You're on your way to freedom. Again, embrace the truth, confess it, walk in it, and in a relatively short period of time, you're going to be free from the sin and its consequences. Let me shift gears here. Let's talk about our national sins today. This week we have the National Day of Prayer. It's going to be a gathering down at the Capitol on Thursday, this Thursday. And uh, it's going to be taking place in every city across the United States. This is the day that we unite together with believers everywhere and we pray for our nation. So what are the national sins today? Here's what I see as probably the cardinal sins of the nation. The hatred and rejection of God. Today, the majority of America hates and rejects God. They reject his Messiah and his word. That's the America that we're living in today. It is a godless and Marxist phenomenon that's growing all around us. Now, that's what the nations do. That's the nature of man. That's the nature of the beast. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. The psalmist asks, why are the nations in an uproar? I mean, you got to think about that. Why, you know, he's asking, what is up with that? You know, I've asked that over and over and over. You're asking that same thing. What is going on with America? Why is America so bent on its hatred towards God? What is, why are they so mad at God? What is the deal, right? Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. They hate God, they hate the Messiah, and they want to take fetters apart and cast them away. The cords of God, the cords that bind. These, though that metaphor is about the Torah. The Torah hems us in. It's a way of life. It gives us structure. It tells us what we can and cannot do. They said, let's, let's eliminate that. The spirit of the world is Torahlessness. The spirit of the, the world says, I want to be equal to God. I want to do whatever I want to do be, and, and have no accountability. Yeah, you know, God's accountable to himself. God's accountable to his own moral codes. It's a lie. Your freedom is not freedom, but a submission to the principle of sin. And that sin will lead you into the realm of death. I want to read this from the message. Same, same verses. Just love this. Why the big noise, nations? Why the mean plots, peoples? Earth leaders push for a position. Demagogues and delegates meet for summit talks. The God deniers. The Messiah defiers. Let's get free from God. Cast loose from the Messiah. Isn't that amazing? Kind of puts it a little bit clearer for us, I think. Today, this year, 2021, I think it marks what would become known as the post-truth America. 
where truth no longer matters, where facts and evidence are irrelevant. The nation wants to be free from God's truth. They have no idea that it's going to destroy life, liberty, and their own happiness. They've bought the lie that there's no consequences to this Torahlessness. They just want a world where anything goes. Think about that for a minute. They say there is no such thing as absolute truths. Therefore, truth is subjective. It's whatever you want it to be. So you have your truth, and I have my truth. So when you say life is sacred and it matters from conception to natural death, they might say, well, that's, that's true for you, for you. I respect that. That's your truth, but my truth is different. That's how that works. That's what it's designed to do. It will ultimately dismiss the truth of God as a way of life for our nation. You have your truth. I have my truth. Really? Because I think truth has an objective data source, and it's the Word of God. The Word of God is truth. It reveals what is true. But today in America, nothing's real. Everything is fluid. Think of sexuality. used to be pretty defined and confined in early America where marriage actually was defined based on the word of God. You know, our, our declaration of independence, we're so dummied down. We, we are so dummied down as a nation by design. It's been going on for, for 50, 60 years. Instead of our kids being instructed and educated on our foundational documents, that comprise our national life, our values, and our principles, they, they, they have been robbed of that, and they don't have any real good understanding of it. Therefore, no value for it. They're so Im, Im, uh, easily, easily impressed with whatever the teacher's saying. Early America said, you know, marriage is between one man and one woman. Where did they get that? Where did they come up with that? Out of thin air? No, they had a document that said, we're going to be governed by the laws of nature and nature's God. And you know what that meant? In er, when, that, when that was written, that phrase, laws of nature and nature's God, was already being used by different Powerful people in the formation of America. That already had traction. That already had a context. The laws of nature and nature's God was a reference to the creator who created all things, seen and unseen. It's a reference to the creator and his law. The laws of nature and nature's God was a reference to the law of God being revealed in creation and that same law being revealed in the scriptures. So they referenced that as we made our laws, as we developed our principles, wrote our constitution. They kept all that in mind. They came up with the definition of marriage, one man, one woman, because they looked to the laws of nature and nature's God and said, oh, that's easy. 
What do we do with that in recent history? We're so far away from the Word of God, it's not even funny. We have our highest court, our most brilliant minds, unhinged from the Scriptures now. Look how brilliant they are. Look how smart they are. Once they're unhinged, you know, they become fools. God said, you've become fools. You've exchanged my glory for, for your own. Now they're saying, well, I guess marriage can be between two women or two men. I mean, it's fluid now. I mean, we can just say whatever we want to say, define whatever we want to define. It's a free-for-all. Now, the head of the Supreme Court had the foresight to say, and he wrote in his dissenting opinion, basically, I'm just paraphrasing, but he basically said, we shouldn't do this. Not good. We haven't really sat down to think about the consequences, which are going to be far-reaching not only will it rush through the land, it'll go around the world. It's going to impact the world. You know, we shouldn't, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't just change this. It's too fundamental. We should think through it a lot more. Maybe take several more years, right, before we do this. But he was just one of the dissenting voices. The Supreme Court changed it. What about biological gender? What does the Word of God say concerning biological gender? Binary. Male and female. That's it. But because we've chucked the laws of nature and nature's God as a nation, anything goes. And now we've got 60, 70 growing. It's, 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 you, almost need, you almost need a college education to understand all those categories now. They're so complicated. It's, it's bizarro world. It's, it's, it's crazy, Bill. I'm living, yeah. remember the fun house at, at Lakeside with the lady laughing outside and going, it's just a crazy house? Yeah, that's America now. I feel like it's crazy house. Thinking, how did we come up with this? What happened? Think of race. Think of race for a minute. What does the word of God say concerning race? It says that we are made in the image of God. That every human being is made in the image of God. That means there's only one race, the human race. Oh, but our enlightened fathers, what did they do during the enlightenment, right? They came up with a new definition for race and then divided all of us based on phenotypes, skin color, hair texture, all these different things. And they divide us all up, right? And then what did we do? We did the nature of the beast deal, right? We begin to look at each other and judge each other based on phenotypes. You know, based on the color of your skin, I judge you. I discriminate. You don't get the job because of the color of your skin. Now, we righted a lot, a lot of that, you know. I mean, we enslaved people based on, on that perversion of race. We fought a civil war. We atoned for our national sins already. We already atoned for our national sins. I'm so sick of people bringing up, you know, how bad America is based on what happened at, at our beginning. Look, we crossed that bridge. We dealt with our past. We atoned for our sins in a bloody civil war. It's over. Well, the civil rights movement went on, and it needed to, and a whole lot of other things got righted along the way. 
And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was probably our best example of what it meant to really come to terms with with what the Word of God saying concerning who we are. He said we're all part of one big family. There's only one race. We are brothers and sisters. We should never judge one another by the color of our skin, but rather by the content of our character. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., man, he had that thing zoned in, dialed in. God blessed him. The nation was changed in in a really powerful way for the good because of that. And now what are we doing? Today, under the new definition of racism, Dr. King's the new racist. See, when, 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 you, when you say uh, you should judge someone by the content of their character and not their skin color, they're saying that's actually another form of racism, which paints Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as a racist nowadays. Do, do, do you know that the, 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 new, the new people group that's going to be demonized are the white people? The white people. He said, well, you're a white person. Well, that's just so stupid. Sorry. You know, I mean, we're just so caught up in this stupidity of racism. There's only one race, the human race. The color of our skin is, is like a bouquet of flowers. Maybe God just wanted some diversity, right? But when we result and in, in, in discriminating against each other based on the color of our skin, that's the very definition of racism. And now they're saying whites need to be discriminated against. Do you know in some places in our country right now, if you're white, you can't get the COVID vaccine because they want to vaccinate X amount of, of, of blacks and browns. And, and until they meet that quota, whites are being turned away from the COVID vaccine. See, that's a form of racism. Can you imagine if they were doing that with black people anywhere in the nation? Oh my gosh, more cities would be burnt down. But if it's white people, well, I guess that's okay. No, that's the new racism. That's the new racism. America's upside down and backwards. And if we don't stop this nonsense and get back to the laws of nature and nature's God, the nation's not going to make it. It's not going to make it. Reducing people and judging them based on the color of their skin is a grievous, grievous sin. And every, everyone is capable of doing that. I want to read from our founding document, the Declaration of Independence. This is a time in which truth actually was valued. This is the roots of our nation, very things that made us great and exceptional as a nation. It starts out with this. We hold these truths. And when they said truths, they meant objective truth. When they said this, they meant this is actually true. Objectively true. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. 
that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Leave that slide up there for just one minute. You say, yeah, but those same guys that wrote that owned slaves. Is that true? Yes, many of them did. That's right, many of them did. They knew what was wrong, by the way, because what what was already being raised in England for decades was across and, and in the ears of Americans everywhere. They understood what was coming. They knew it was wrong. They were already convicted. And when they penned these words, they knew... That, that it was in contradiction with their own lives, but it would be the, be the very thing that would right the wrong. When they wrote this, they knew basically it was the death knell to the blight and stain of slavery in our land. And it did. This text here became the very basis of ending slavery And the fight against racism would now go on in a beautiful way, a triumphant way, based on this text. I want to remind us that we receive our rights from God, our Creator. They're contained in the laws of nature and nature's God. That, too, is in the Declaration of Independence We're to be governed by the laws of nature and nature's God. So when we write laws as a nation, the framework for what we write is based on the revelation that comes to us through creation and through the scriptures. What we can deduce from creation about what is right and wrong and the scriptures, what is right and wrong, that's what we're going to actually form and write to govern our nation. Now, when you look at our nation now and what we've legislated and our way of life, it's easy to see how far away we are from our founding documents. No wonder we're being judged. No wonder America's falling. She's falling so quickly, it's just astonishing. I think we're witnessing the collapse of America as we know it. I'm not sure if she's going to be saved. Don't know. Don't know. It goes on on to say, slide 72, that to secure these rights, what right? These inalienable rights, the rights that come from God, not government, they come from God. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Yeah, yeah. We say we're going to govern ourselves. We read in the word of God that we're all kings. We're a royal priesthood, a royal nation in Christ. We are are the people of God. So we'll govern ourselves through our own representatives. And then we're going to tell our representatives, make sure that you secure the rights that we have from God. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Make sure any legislation that you you, uh, uh, write is derived from the principles in God's word concerning what is real, what is true. And we'll govern ourselves by the word of God goes on to say that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. 
Is it any wonder they're not teaching our children about these documents anymore? Oh, yeah. That's the last thing they want this generation to understand. Because what they're doing now is the removal of our liberties, our way of life. The coup d'etat has already happened, and the collapse is already in view, and things are going to get real bad as a result of that. So what's the hope of the nation, right? It's going to be a return to the laws of nature and nature's God. That is what the prophets cried out over and over and over. Every time Israel got arrogant and departed from the ways of God over a period of time, she began to fall. Terrible things happened. God would use invading armies. They'd cry out to God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the prophets would say, return to the law of God. Return and reform your ways. And you know, when Israel did that, God would have mercy and then, then he would remove their, their oppressors and then they would come back into their own sovereignty and things would be good until they grew lax and then fell away from the Lord and the thing would happen over and over and over. And we're doing the same thing in America. It's just astonishing, the same exact thing. And that's why America is falling at such a great rate today. So let me back up and just, in our, in our conclusion, I just want to say this. How do we find personal freedom from the lies that lead to tyranny? By returning to God, by recommitting our lives to Jesus Christ, and embracing his word as the way of life. That's how we find personal liberty and freedom in our spirit from the principle of sin and shame. We embrace truth, we live truth, and we share truth. That's our motto. The next question is, how do we find national freedom from the lies that lead to tyranny? See, people say all the time, well, we shouldn't be involved in politics. You know, the church should stay out of politics. That's not the realm of the believer. Well, how's that working for you? When you lose more and more of your freedoms... When your son comes home and tells you he's no longer Robbie, he's Rachel. How's that working for you? You see, if we're not involved in politics, things are going to get really bad. We are called to be the conscience of the nation. We are called to tell our leaders to legislate according to the word of God, to the truths found in creation and his word. And if we abdicate that role to be a voice in the realm of politics. We're in trouble. You can, you can be free and Messiah all you want. Go to China. They have church in their basement. They don't have worship teams or anything. They, they might get caught. They have to run and hide. In America, if we don't stand up and take control of our nation once again, we're going to lose even the freedom to worship God like we do now. We need to return to the laws of nature and nature's God, which is code for truth found in creation and in the scriptures. And if the nation returns, she'll be great again. If it does not, believers will be spiritually free but oppressed, persecuted, and enslaved by a cruel and hate-filled mob rule. As believers, we need to wake up, get involved in politics, or 
will soon be licking the boots of the neo-Marxists who are already censoring free speech, looting and burning down our cities and businesses, and are hoping to mandate medical experiments against your own will. It's happening already. Wake up, wake up, wake up. National Day of Prayer this Thursday. Let's be praying for our nation. All day Thursday, united, crying out to God. Let's get involved. Let's not be passive. Let's speak out. We have the Spirit of God. God says, my sons and my daughters shall prophesy. Let's be the voice of God to our leaders in every realm. Let's speak out and share the truth in love, but let's share the truth. The nation's counting on us, and she doesn't even know it. And if the church doesn't rise up, America will fall. All right, that's it. Thanks for hanging with me. Shabbat Shalom.